Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it doesn't sound like Ottawa is interested in the Ford government's proposal to piggyback on the federal paid sick leave program. What does this mean for Ford's promise of the best paid sick policy in the country? Well, we'll talk about that. And Nasi says the AstraZeneca vaccine can now be used on people 30 years and up. Well, that's the good news. The bad news is the demand is exceeding the supplies. Canada running out of AstraZeneca? And after a lengthy debate, trustees at the Halton Catholic District School Board have voted against flying the pride flag. The chairman of the board, Patrick Murphy, joins us to talk about that. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with on the program today, uh, the back and forth between the federal government and the Ontario provincial government about paid sick days continues. Uh, we saw a teary-eyed Doug Ford a week or two ago now saying that, you know, we blew it and, uh, you know, we're going to get the best program ever, the best paid sick days of anywhere else. Uh, well, the letter they sent uh, eventually at Ottawa basically said, well, just we just want to piggyback. We'll put a few more bucks into the program, but you guys run it. And the province is saying, uh-uh, it doesn't really sound at this point like Ottawa is interested in the Ford government's proposal to piggyback on that federal plan. Uh, Global's Dave Woodard has some stories for us. Ontario's Labour Minister says the federal sick pay program wasn't enough, so the province is stepping up. With hundreds of millions of dollars to double this program, make it retroactive for 60 days. McNaughton says the reason they're asking the federal government to do the legwork is because the system is already in place and it will get Ontarians money quicker. But Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says the province needs to set it up to go through provincially regulated employers, something the feds can't do. He says they are working with the province to make sure they can do something for people sooner rather than later. That's what we all want on this, and we need to make sure uh, we're using the right tools. Dave Woodard, Global News. Well, who's right, who's wrong? And, and as this debate continues, I guess the big problem here is that a lot of people are saying, well, what about us? And they're the ones that probably should be getting the help right now. Try to get some perspective on this. We're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull is a director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, doctor, hope you're doing well these days. Hi, I'm doing fine. Good. Doing I know fine. I will, you've got some concerns in your home province right now, too, but uh, it looks yeah. like your premier and uh, staff are, are on the ball there. And, uh, well, there's a lockdown going on, but uh, we wish the best for you, too, just uh, with some of the new stuff that's going on there. Uh, Thank you. Talk, talk to us a little bit, if you could, Doctor, about paid sick leave. I know it's been a very contentious issue right from the beginning. Uh, there's, as we say, a lot of finger-pointing. And, we've, uh, by the way, we should also mention to our listeners, this is not unique to Ontario and Ottawa. I know that uh, B.C. Premier Horgan is having the same debate right now with the federal government about this. Uh, what What is the jurisdictional groundwork like here? I mean, it's it's tough. Like it's, a, it's like a lot of these issues that fall into the network of what does government do for you? What is the social safety net? You know, what does government do to protect you? What kind of services do we get? And if you look at the Constitution in a really kind of literal way, it seems to to divide those responsibilities up between the federal provincial government. And yes, it does do that. And we think of jurisdictional responsibility for things like healthcare and education there at the provincial level. And we think of things like, you know, um, currency and, and cr- criminal law and things like that in the federal gov- in the federal space. But of course, the way it all works out is not totally black and white, right? Like lots of lots of provincial matters are so expensive and so all encompassing that even though the province has constitutional jurisdiction for it, to be able to fill the space in that jurisdiction in a meaningful way requires the federal government to get involved, largely with a checkbook, right, to make sure that the, the service can actually be provided. And the other thing is when you look at it from a sort of equalization perspective, I don't mean that in a, in a really you know, literal equalization way, but kind of the sense that, you know, we're all in the same country and we're all entitled constitutionally to a similar quality of life at a similar rate of taxation, 
that creates a responsibility on the part of the federal government to sort of level things off when they don't work out on their own at the provincial level. So something like, you know, we're seeing these social programs that are expanding during the COVID period. And, you know, many of them we think of to be temporary. And, you know, we've sort of asked in the federal government how long certain programs are going to go on. I think the sick leave issue is a really tricky one because there's a sort of public health argument to be made that we should have at least a temporary paid sick day program now because we know about the spread of COVID-19 in the workplace. And it is tragic. But from a socioeconomic perspective, from a fairness perspective, from an equity perspective, I'm not sure how we could claw back a program like that once we, once we had it, because there are other arguments around fairness in people in different types of work being able to take paid sick days. And, and therein lies the problem uh, in situations like this. And, of course, you know historically that Ontario actually did have a program for paid sick days, two paid sick days. It was the, you know, brought in by the previous government. Uh, the Ford government abolished that uh, not too long after they won power a couple of years ago now. Uh, so it, it, it has happened, and that was not in the pandemic. That was, I think, bowing to public pressure from a lot of people that just put the argument forth that you just did, is that, look, at this uh, This happens in the workplace, and do you want people to go to work sick and, and spread whatever it is, whether it's the flu or anything else, uh, or something more severe like a pandemic and a, and a virus like this? So there, there lies the argument. Uh, now we have to determine exactly where the solution is and I, I, I and I take your point once you give somebody something uh, they don't want to see it go away I mean you know uh, you know it, you can't just say that this is going to be temporary because the problem is not going to go away for a long long time and that's the dilemma that I guess about every government faces now isn't it well that's it yeah I think we're seeing now like expectations from the public are changing and we are expecting you know and we're seeing also like evidence and data around it's not just a political argument right like not that it's you know i don't mean to not just but there's also an evidence-based argument that we we can see this virus spreading and we can we can identify the fact that paid sick days would help that and so i think it's much harder for governments to back away from the fact that we need action on that because there's actually you know there's there's medical experts you know drawing attention to the fact that this is this is a reality and, and uh, boy, we can get into the legal weeds here if we wanted to, I, and that's part of the jurisdictional thing. I mean, because I've talked to some some people, some lawyers about this, and uh, you talk to a couple of lawyers, and you get one opinion, and the the other. I mean, the Employment Standards Act. I'm I'm always told is is that's where you should reference this, and it which basically dictates that this is a provincial responsibility about sick mm-hmm. days, paid sick days, or non-paid sick days, whatever the case might be. And that seems to be where the federal government is pointing right now. Is is that a legitimate argument? Yeah, so the feds are, yeah, I mean, I can see the political back and forth here and, you know, both governments kind of putting pressure on the other to say, hey, look, you have to take some action here. And from, you know, as the prime minister said last night, um, there's a sense that the province has to be the one to engage with provincially regulated businesses and the federal government is not the one in the position to do that. Now, sure, that that makes sense. I think um, some of what the federal government, this government in particular, has done in terms of, you know, really growing some programs and getting into childcare. And, you know, there's like, as we, you and I talked about the budget, there's something for everybody in there. Yeah. And the glaring omission is paid sick days. And so I think it's a little bit hard politically for this government to say, yeah, we're going to do all that for you, but we're not going to do this, even though this seems to be the thing that would actually turn things around. At the same time, though, you know, do you want to get in the position where the provinces are coming to you and saying, we want this, we want this, and you, ju- you know, you, you acquiesce? That's a weird political space for everybody, I think, because on the other hand, like even from the provincial perspective, 
if you're saying that the, the federal government is the one that really brings you these programs, we need them to do that. You know, it's, it's strange for the provinces at a certain point, because then it's like, you know, the major action is all coming from the federal government. The money for social programs is all from the federal government. And the provinces become these things that are administering essentially what are federal programs with federal money on federal terms. And so this, this is a really interesting, messy area. It is, and it's it's not a new issue, not not a new dilemma between federal and provincial relations, is it? I mean, for the longest time right now, and you just touched on a couple of the hot button issues, healthcare being one of them. Uh, we can talk about you know disbursements of other monies as well, uh, equalization payments, I guess. Uh, really, what it comes down to here is, uh, the, you know, the, the the federal every time the federal government wants to get involved in something, and we even heard that after the phone speech about the daycare proposition, uh, the the provinces kick up their heels and say, "Wait a second, back off. That's our responsibility." Uh, they want the money for it, but they, they don't want the federal government sticking their nose in. And, and we're getting the same sort of thing with health care, of course, with the demand from all of the provinces right now to say, just give us the money and we'll decide where the money's going to go and how it's going to be allocated. So, But your point is well taken. With the stuff that the federal government enacted last February, including CERB and some other things like that, have they already crossed that line? I mean, that's it, right? Like from a kind of... From, when you look at it from the essence of what is the program about, what are you trying to do, like it, it's a little strange that this is the thing that the federal government is saying, no, no, this is this is the action of the provinces, right? Even if they decided to to bring in something, and again, I I, I think this is really politically problematic, but on on a temporary basis, right? Sort of like why is why is this the thing that that is the sticking point between the federal government and the province? But as you say, like there's a there's a back and forth because the you know the the governments are kind of wanting to share the vulnerability, share the cost, but they each want the credit. And yeah. so it's, you know, it's, it's difficult because what, like from a perspective of a provincial premier, what are you campaigning on? If the federal government is, is, these are all, you know, essentially what are federal programs. But again, like, as you say, you know, if, are, are we heading into a scenario with the childcare negotiations where every province says, look, just give us, give us the money. We'll do it ourselves. I don't think that's what uh, the prime minister and the deputy prime minister are thinking at all. No, I mean, that's 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 a non-starter, obviously. They're going to have to have a say in it. I mean, if there's going to be dollars in that, uh, and, and that's a debate that's going to happen down the road. We understand that. But the, the, here's the problem, though, because I, I know for the people that say, look, it, there's already a program in place. Uh, you know, it's superfluous for the province to kick into this. All they have to do is top this up. But I've talked to people that have applied for that program. As a matter of fact, a lot of people that are telling me that this is a, a frivolous argument are people that don't need this anyway. The people that need it and have applied for it are telling me the federal problem has flaws all over the place. You know, it takes way too long. You, some people don't even qualify for it. The money's not enough. Uh, you know, you want to take a couple of days off because you're quarantining. It may be a month, could be two months, three months if you ever get any money from the federal government. Well, that's that's certainly not the answer. So I, I guess the argument we're getting from the provinces now, especially Ontario, is the federal government needs to clean up and, and fix those those sh shortcomings in that program, and we'll top it up, uh, which yeah. seems to be to be a compromise. But I'm not getting a whole lot of love from the federal government about this. You know what? This is a really interesting uh, part of the part of the story and part of the debate too. Is you know the federal government this time last year demonstrate demonstrated just how quickly CRA can put money in your account. You know, like it can be yeah. literally like two days. And so, OK, if you could put CERB in motion like that and you've got money flowing, like and I'm, I'm, I absolutely know that there were problems and nothing is perfect. But frankly, the federal government demonstrated its capacity to be extremely responsive financially to individuals at a very short period of time. And so now they're stuck with that reality. We know how responsive they can be. 
Yeah, they they uh, they kind of defeated their own argument, didn't they, by simply getting the money out there? <laughs> yep, yep. We know they can I, do it. I, I didn't. I didn't really like the idea. Hey, just apply for it. And we'll give you the money, and we'll read this out later on. I mean, that that didn't go so well for them. But the fact is, is they can get the money out the door much, much faster. So. Here's here's the problem, though, Doctor. I mean, you know, there's valid points in this point and counterpoint in this argument. And in the meantime, there's an awful lot of people right now that need this assistance right now. Is Do you see hope for a middle ground here or a compromise? Or are these guys just going to dig their heels in? You know what? Like, I mean, far be it for me to um, make any assumptions about what Doug Ford's political strategy should be. I don't understand why he doesn't just do this. You know, he's in trouble. He is, he's, you know, really kind of up against the wall at this point, And he's, you know, anytime a premier is on television, basically in tears saying, I screwed up, that is not what you want. Right. And so mm-hmm. why not come through and respond on this? Like, you know, it might be the thing that redeems and gives you a shot. Like, you know what, it, this would really change the narrative and there'd be a clear, you know, sense that, okay, he's got it. I think it would help him to build trust. I think it would be, you know, an obvious thing, an action to take right now and I'm, I'm just sort of like hey look this seems to make sense from all kinds of angles including politically well that's what i'm wondering as well i mean you know we all watch the premier they're getting teary-eyed and saying you know we screwed up and we're going to fix this and he made a promise that day by the way that they were going to develop uh the best paid sick leave program of anywhere well they haven't done that they've just asked to partner with the other one so that's it's not really what he promised he was going to do in situations like that but i see a political win for him here as, as you just pointed out to say look at you know what i messed up but now look what we got for you uh, but he's not doing that, and and that's I think what what's causing an awful lot of frustration in the province of Ontario right now. You know, he talked about you know the, maybe he was overreacting with the closures here. You know, mm-hmm. Ontario is the only jurisdiction in North America that doesn't allow golf uh, because of the lockdowns right now. But he hasn't changed any of that stuff. It, it, you know, he was teary-eyed and said he was going to do things differently, and he hasn't done anything differently to this point. Uh, and and well, I guess that's you know part of the political game that they play here. But in the meantime, a lot of people are saying, well, wait a second here. What about us? And you know. Yeah. We don't care about the bickering. We don't care about the, you know, the the turf war between the provinces and the feds. We don't care about a liberal government and a conservative government. Just get us the help. And and that seems to have been put on the back burner by both of them. That's it. And I mean, absolutely. Why would a citizen, why, why would anybody care about the back and forth between orders of government? That's, the, that's their problem, right? Like, yeah. people need programs now. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of seeing this through the same lens as you. I, and I think he's got a major trust issue right now that even from the perspective of trying to maintain any sense of confidence in his government, any sense of confidence in, in you know, what we're being told to do and compliance with those, the, you know, like th- those things all become really difficult when the message keeps changing, when his, his approach seems to be offside with what the science table is saying, like it's just, it becomes really difficult to continue and to expect people to support what you're doing at all. And so I think people would um, find forgiveness if, you know, for some of the screw ups, if he took a clear action on paid sick leave, it seems like a no brainer to me, but hey. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Here we are applying common sense to politics again, and that always gets us in trouble. Yeah, we keep doing that. I know. We're going to have to watch yourselves on that, Doctor. Uh, (laughs) Always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much. Stay well out in Nova Scotia, and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thanks a lot. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, of course, Director of School of uh, Public Administration at Dalhousie University. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about vaccines. I mentioned the program. Well, I got mine on Monday, and uh, I'm feeling pretty good about that. And uh, the numbers are starting to look a lot better here in Canada over the last little while. But there's a concern now about supply, once again, and procurement. Uh, Yesterday, the Prime Minister said that his government is in close contact with the United States and with diplomatic officials at the Canadian Embassy about procuring more doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is not being used south of the border. It is all a question of timing. Um, We know that uh, we have uh, capacity to deliver vaccines immediately uh, into more arms as we can get more vaccine doses into Canada. So uh, we are continuing to work every single day to try and get uh, those doses into Canada to increase our capacity on vaccination. Well, not a moment too soon either, because now we're starting to hear that uh, demand is starting to outstrip supply. And uh, the pharmacies that are jumping on board and have done an outstanding job in in getting the vaccines out there are very concerned that, uh, well, the shelves are dwindling right now. Justin Bates is the CEO for the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Justin, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us again today. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. What is the, uh, the situation right now as you see it from your members? It does look likely that we will be fully depleted of all of the AstraZeneca vaccine inventory that's out into the community pharmacies by the end of the week. Some might trickle into the weekend, but we're certainly getting very low, which I think is a good sign that people uh, went and got the vaccine and that uh, we're able to get more shots in arms. But it does increase the likelihood of a supply interruption. Well, and let's talk a little bit about that. And I agree with you, by the way, the fact that there's so much demand here is so, it's fabulous because there's always, always that concern about vaccine hesitancy. It looks like people seem to be getting over that, especially with the AstraZeneca. Uh, Justin, with the, the pharmacies jumping on board now, and it, as, as we mentioned at the top here, I'm so glad that they've done that because it makes things an awful lot easier for an awful lot of people that do want to get vaccinated. Are you dealing exclusively with AstraZeneca through the pharmacy, pharmacy program? For the launch that we have undertaken thus far, which now includes three different phases and up to 1,400 pharmacies, it has been dedicated supply of AstraZeneca. That said, we have been advocating from the beginning of this program that we should have all vaccines distributed through both uh, pharmacy and primary care. We need to create more access to vaccines and avoid any unnecessary supply interruptions. So the good news is that we are working uh, with the Ministry of Health to launch this week, hopefully in the next couple of days, uh, a Pfizer limited launch in Toronto and Peel. Yeah, because that's the question I'm hearing all the time, and I'm sure your members are hearing the same thing too. How, you know, what if I want this one or that one, or you know, how come it's just AstraZeneca? And just, uh, and I guess it's, it's in most most cases it's the luck of the draw. But I mean, uh, the concern we've got here now is that we don't want people, you know, to say, well, I want to go to my local pharmacy and get a vaccination and find out that there's nothing available. I know we had the, a problem with the flu shots back in the fall. I think you and I talked about that at the time, but that was just a matter of a, a day or two short supply, and everything seemed to work out after that. But when we juxtapose what you're just telling us and what your members are telling you uh, against the fact that now we're hearing that the next shipment of AstraZeneca may not come until the end of next month. Uh, it's causing some problems. I, I, are you confident in the discussions you're having right now with the ministry that you can you can meet the demand that's going to be happening? Well, it does come down to availability and willingness to allocate to pharmacy channel of Pfizer. We know there is uh, Pfizer Uh, available in terms of supply. It's the most predictable of the three in terms of the certainty every week of the shipments, uh, whereas Moderna has been delayed. uh, And as we know, AstraZeneca, because of the crisis in India, uh, has uh, certainly introduced the global supply chain challenge uh, in getting 
AstraZeneca into Canada, but that's going to be important. We can't lose sight of the second doses that need to be administered and the federal government having conversations uh, with uh, President Biden and his team to bring up some of the uh, $60 million that they have that will go unused uh, in their warehouse. Has, has any of that stuff made it across the border yet? Well, we had our initial batch from the U.S., which is now out into the community. There's a mix of uh, mm-hmm. a batch from Sweden and the U.S. that uh, we're using currently. But um, there is no final deal or commitment on uh, timing and when we'll get uh, any more from the U.S. So I know those discussions are ongoing. I, I'm trying to read something into this. Give me your opinion on this, Justin. From what I'm hearing from President Biden now, uh, I, I'm getting the sense that the, the, the story he's sort of setting out here, although it's kind of between the lines, is they don't need AstraZeneca. I mean, I know they're producing it in, in large numbers down in the States, but they've got their own facilities there. It hasn't even been approved by the FDA down there yet, but they seem to be doing just fine without it. And I don't think they're, they're looking long term and saying maybe we can send a lot, if not all of this stuff out. That's the messaging we're getting is that they have ample supply of Pfizer and Moderna and, and um, may use J&J as well, um, yeah. which has been recently approved. Um, so they don't need to use the, the AstraZeneca. So, it, I mean, it's a bit uh, mind-boggling that they have that many doses sitting in uh, warehouses and being unused while, you know, we're looking at uh, supply shortages. But I think that's part of the, the discussions. And yeah, there is this COVAX sharing uh, internationally mm-hmm. to make sure that doses don't get wasted and go to priority areas. And again, we have to guess right now, I guess this, we anticipate really there are going to be blips along the line uh, as we just got with AstraZeneca. And for the listeners who may not be aware, my understanding is that most of the AstraZeneca that we have and have had right from the beginning of the, the vaccine rollout here, Justin, has come from India. Uh, that And that's why that supply all of a sudden has, has been curtailed because they basically, because of the numbers, and we've seen the, the situation in India right now, they say, look, we, we need to look after our people here first, uh, not unlike what many other countries are doing in situations like like that and they're in a pretty precarious situation that's right yeah i mean when you look at uh one of the vulnerabilities in our global supply chain is the dependency of sourcing active product ingredients and manufacturing um out into india because when something like this happens it exposes those fault lines of not having enough domestic production and and the manufacturing to uh, address the needs of Canadians. So I think that's a long-term uh, sustainability issue that needs to be looked at. We saw it with PPE as well. Um, lack of domestic production puts in risks uh, for access when we have a crisis such as this. Talk to us about the procedure here. And, and uh, You mentioned uh, which uh, pharmacies, or the number of pharmacies rather, that are on board. And it's a pretty extensive list. Uh, are you getting any sense that, uh, that as this continues along, and uh, as you say, there's still second doses to go and a lot more to happen here, uh, that more pharmacies may want to be participants in this? Well, absolutely. We have a 1,000 in, uh, in the queue waiting to be onboarded. Uh, they've signed their, their agreements with the Ministry of Health, and it's just a matter of being able to sequence that uh, when there's enough supply. Um, so we can increase our capacity and throughput by adding those pharmacies. Um, and certainly adding Pfizer to the mix in the pharmacy channel will help um, and uh, allow us to, to add more options and access for people across the, the province. And we're also trying to focus in the hotspot regions, um, putting in more pop-up clinics that pharmacists mm-hmm. could potentially participate in, go into the high-risk neighbourhoods, as well as uh, the essential worker uh, cohort that's under 40 that is so critical to get vaccinated. 
And, and what's the procedure in situations like that? Because I know that some of the, the pharmacy chains actually had their own web pages for you to book stuff. Or, or it, it, would you rather that people went through the provincial body uh, and, and try to do it that way? What's the, the more efficient way and, and the way that's less cumbersome, I guess, for your members as they try to go through the system here? It's been an interesting journey with the, the bookings and wait. Hasn't it, though? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lots of uh, discussion about that, and I can understand some of the frustration uh, from the public's perspective. You know, I think pharmacists are doing their best to manage that and the demand that's coming along with it. Um, what we heard from the government in early March was that pharmacists would not be permitted to use the provincial system. Um, and as you saw, it was delayed in its launch, and we launched actually before it was available. Yeah. And even some of the public health units have developed their own systems. So it's it's far from a single central system. Uh, I think that would have solved some of the issues in terms of uh, wait lists and people double booking um, and and so forth. But one of the challenges that we had early on is that we didn't want to waste any dosages. So we allowed uh, most recently for walk-ins so that, you know, if there was something sitting in the vial that was going to expire, we could uh, also option, uh, you know, create that as an option. Also, some people are not tech savvy uh, and they're comfortable going into their pharmacy. It's an on-demand service and it's something that is one of our advantages. So we tried to create a a model that was more of a hybrid um, and give people options. Yeah, we had discussed a week or so ago on our program the, uh, the the Nova Scotia model that they're using, uh, which, it, by the way, was developed in Ontario. I'm not sure why we're not using it. Uh, but it's, you're right, it's a one-stop shopping thing. I mean, they basically, once you get on the webpage there, I'm sure you're aware of this, uh, they give you the options. You want to go to a pharmacy? Here's the pharmacies. You want to go through the government? There's the government. And pick your day, pick your time, et cetera, like that. And it's a lot easier for people to do. Uh, and, uh, well, you know, it is what it is, I guess. We, we have the system that we have. i got to ask you, though, because i got a couple of emails uh, the last time you and I talked, uh, and it had reference to, uh, I guess it was the end of March, uh, when it looked like there were some AstraZeneca vaccines that were going to expire, I think, in a couple of weeks from there. And you basically just said, look, book the appointments and let's just use this stuff. And I know uh, quite a few people in our, our listenership did that, uh, but they didn't get a second date for the second dose. And they said, oh, we'll get to that later. Other jurisdictions and other places are doing that second date. What's the, what's the, the, the status of that right now? So the, the guidance from the Ministry of Health uh, to all of the uh, healthcare providers, be it a mass immunization clinic, primary care, or pharmacy, is to book the second date 16 weeks out uh, with the patient while they're in the um, site or at the site to get the, the vaccination. In the cases where that didn't happen, there will be a follow-up um, by the, uh, the pharmacy, and they'll make sure that everybody that had the first dose gets the second dose. So I think that's really important to emphasize. We're not going to leave anyone behind. Uh, anytime I get somebody with the pharmaceutical expertise of yours, I got a couple of other things too that people are always asking me. Can you mix doses, Justin? I mean, if you had say AstraZeneca as your first dose, uh, can you go to to the municipal or the, the provincial website and say, well, second dose might be Pfizer, might be Moderna. Does it much matter, or do you want to stay with the same uh, same company and the same dose that you had in the first place? It's interesting. There is uh, growing research that's being done right now on the efficacy and safety of mixing uh, doses between mRNA vaccines and viral vectors like the AstraZeneca. Um, At this point, there's nothing conclusive that's uh, suggesting that that is um, something that should be done. But I do anticipate uh, research papers being published over the next uh, 60 to 90 days that that may indicate that that would be um, possible. At this point, the recommendation and the guidance from the manufacturers and, and the Ministry of Health and public health uh, experts is that we should not be mixing doses. So if you had AstraZeneca, your second shot should be AstraZeneca. If you had Pfizer, et cetera, et cetera, down the road. 
That's correct. And that may change as we learn more and, and mm-hmm. uh, the research evolves. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because I've seen stories about that. And I guess over in Europe right now, they're doing some of those studies uh, to determine, you know, what kind of effects, if any, uh, you know, mixing would actually have. And I'm sure we'll get that data uh, sooner than later. They've been pretty sharp on, on everything else that they've done here. Let me, if I could just circle back to the beginning of our conversation because we're just about out of time. And I, I don't want people to, to think that, oh, my God, you know, we're, the shelves are going to be empty and people aren't going to get vaccinated at all. Uh, you're having the discussions with the ministry right now. Are you confident that uh, there may be a, a couple of days delay here? I understand that between uh, the AstraZeneca and perhaps moving into a, uh, using Pfizer instead. But are you confident that that's, it's going to be a short delay if there's going to be any delay here? I am. I think we, we have other options as well as the Janssen, Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which apparently has arrived or will be arriving shortly in Ottawa. Uh, so there will be a mix of vaccines, it, but it's not going to be perfect. There will be some bumps along the way, perhaps a, a lull uh, of a short time period. But I know we're working uh, with all levels of government to make that as um, limited a a gap as possible. And and if, in fact, you do do that pivot over to to Pfizer, uh, once the uh, the AstraZeneca vaccines come back online, which we're going to have some probably late May, early June, uh, that that shipment should come, if not sooner. But that seems to be uh, what Minister Anand is talking about right now. Uh, Do you go back to that or you just continue with the the, the flow of the the Pfizer that you're going to be using in the meantime? Well, I think it's important that we receive enough replenishment of the AstraZeneca to fulfill the second dose yeah, uh, okay. requirements. So there will be, a, at, the, at a minimum, that will be required. And uh, we'll have to see how much is available of each, and that will have to be coordinated. Uh, we don't want to necessarily have three or four different vaccines in the same pharmacy, so we'd have to think strategically about how that's distributed and uh, to make it not confusing to the public as well with all the different age restrictions uh, that are tied to different uh, places to get the vaccine and the different vaccines. So there's there's work to do on uh, making that more streamlined. Yeah, I, I've talked to a couple of pharmacists uh, in the, the Ancaster-Hamilton area here, and that seems to be the message I'm getting from them as well, that uh, any decision about, well, if you want AstraZeneca, you know, you're not going to make that decision at the pharmacy. You know, this is not shopping. I'll take that brand or that brand. Uh, they'd rather you made that decision when you're logging in for your appointment, uh, you know, because different places have different bra- vaccines, of course, and uh, they don't want to have to do that there. This is, I don't think it was ever the intention to give people a, a choice once they roll their sleeve up, is it? No, you should get the, the, the vaccine that's offered to you first. They're all great vaccines. Um, it's unfortunate some of the miscommunications about AstraZeneca and the emphasis on it, but it is a very safe and effective vaccine. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't hesitate. I got it myself on Monday. So um, I think people just need to have confidence in all three. Once I, I final question for you about the the Pfizer once again because I'm I'm I, I with you I'm hoping that the provinces and the Ministry of Health is going to come on side and and, and fill the gap here. Uh, you also mentioned that there's a number of other pharmacies, a lot of other pharmacies that want to start to to be part of this program as well. Are you confident that if you make that pivot over to Pfizer, you're going to have enough product to bring some of those other pharmacies on as well? That's the plan. That's one of the okay. reasons we're introducing Pfizer is so that we can continue to have the high throughput of. Uh, an average of 40 doses per pharmacy per day. We don't want to lose that momentum because that's going to be a huge contributor to the herd immunity and, and getting those vaccination rates up. So um, I think that in order to ensure we have confidence in the system and the supply, we need to make sure that we get those pharmacies onboarded and with enough supply to meet the demand. 
I, I know that there's some concern among some of your members about uh, the announcement they, uh, they made the other day about lowering the age limit for the AstraZeneca, and uh, and I, I think the, the consternation was, wait a second, we don't have enough supply for you to do that. Uh, are you still going with the old standards here, or instead of lowering it down to uh, much younger, as, as, as the uh, governing body had suggested at one point? Yeah, and then BC just lowered it to yeah. AstraZeneca to 30 plus. So I think it's been largely supply related. Um, we wanted to get through the 40 and above uh, age cohort and then uh, look at the supply and make a decision to go down. I mean, Health Canada's approved this for 18 plus. Yeah. And I think it's unfortunate that um, NACI has, um, while they've taken an abundance of caution, at the same time they've created some confusion out there. And then you look at Pfizer in mass immunization clinics is 45 and above. AstraZeneca 40 and above, and then in hotspots where there's pop-up clinics, it's 18 and above. This is very confusing for people to know, you know, what is the age, uh, where should I go, and I think we need to do a better job in communicating those uh, restrictions. Well, and so does NACI. I mean, when they make an announcement like that, I think they, they've got to do it with the understanding this is not one size fits all, as you just mentioned. Different jurisdictions have different standards here uh, based on, as you say, pro- availability of product and other things as well. So uh, I guess the, the takeaway here for our listeners is uh, check with your, your local uh, agency uh, when you go online and uh, you'll find out about exactly what the li- limitations and the qualifications are. Uh, Justin, as always, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, thanks to you and uh, the great work that all of your members are doing to try to get the vaccines out there i know it's a it's a huge undertaking and uh, as always of course the pharmacy is uh, the go-to place for most people here right now to get to exactly what they need and get the advice that they need so uh, i guess keep doing what you're doing thank you it's been my pleasure have a great okay. day you too justin bates who is the ceo for the ontario pharmacists association and uh, I, and again i know we we talked about that announcement on the morning news here that uh, you know they've lowered the age nasi has but uh, it depends on your jurisdiction and in ontario right now uh, things are a little tight until they get the go-ahead from the ministry uh, to actually use Pfizer in some of these pharmacies and a lot more of the pharmacies, too. So good news on the horizon for that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, I want to touch on a very controversial issue. A, a long meeting uh, resulted in uh, what a, a motion that was passed by the the Halton trustees of the Halton Catholic School Board. Uh, that, uh, well, they feel is a compromise situation. Uh, here's the background on this. Halton Catholic District School Board uh, have voted against flying the pride flag at its schools after a lengthy discussion that was weighed down by procedural wrangling and uh, numerous attempted amendments. Of course, June is Pride Month, and uh, a number of municipalities and, and uh, boards of education right across the province fly the pride flag in support of that. Uh, the debate started after Burlington trustee Brenda Agnew moved a motion to direct board staff to ensure that the flag was flown during Pride Month in June at all schools in the board's headquarters. It also sought to encourage the creation of events that prompted equity and inclusion, as well as the posting of a safe place poster in each classroom. Uh, Agnew went on to say that she moved the motion in part to, quote, save student lives, citing how a number of students who identify as LGBTQ have died by suicide. Uh, joining us to talk about uh, the result and uh, the implications thereof is uh, Patrick Murphy. Uh, Patrick is the chair of the Halton Catholic District School Board. Joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to uh, speak with you. Let's, t- let's talk a little bit about this. This is not a new issue, of course. Boards of education, Catholic and, and public, have been dealing with this in various ways and forms uh, for a number of years right now. Uh, what was the, the policy last year? I mean, with June and, and Pride Month last year was a different situation. Now, I know uh, it wasn't obviously as directive because of what went on with the pandemic and schools were not operational. Uh, but, but has there been a past policy on this, Patrick? Uh, Bill, that's a, that's a very good point. So where 
we all are aware that um, other boards have been dealing with this issue, uh, some for for several years. It is the first time that it's been brought to the boardroom table. So for us, it is uh, a new um, issue that we're dealing with, and there is no existing policy uh, regarding uh, flying flags or, or regarding uh, the symbol of the pride flag within our board. So even after the, uh, the tumultuous uh, debate that went on in, in the Queen's Park legislature uh, with amendments, and, and at that time Premier Dalton McGuinney's uh, uh, new policy that was developed, uh, the Halton Board, you, you didn't do, deal with this at all? I, well, I guess they're not going to deal with it unless no, somebody doesn't bring it up, I suppose. Exactly, exactly. So um, within, our, within our board, we have a human rights and, and equity office, and, and um, we have specific training programs and uh, supporting the two SLGBTQ plus uh, community is part of that part of that training, um, but it has never evolved into a ad hoc committee or um, or the this issue of the flag has never been brought to the table before. Uh, let me ask you. I guess we had a friend. I mean, after this long, were you are you supportive of the motion that was finally passed? Uh, I'm supportive of the motion that was passed because it's the first step. Uh, to me, we, we had over a thousand plus pieces of correspondence coming in, and it was very clear that it's a polarizing issue. It's 100% for, it's 100% against. There is no discussion in the, in the middle ground. I found it very perplexing to me that how could, could something be um, so polarizing when you know we have the same faith and conceivably people are sitting in the same same church listening to the same to the same message but um the we don't have a shared knowledge and understanding of what the pride symbol means uh to the 2s lgbtq plus community therein lies the problem that i see so um the the motion that was put forward is a first step in us developing within our community of the halton catholic district school board what that symbol means to us and to make sure that we're all aware. Um, so the mandatory staff training and education, raising community awareness, which, which will take the form of using social media and other programs that our communications department will bring forward in June, uh, and then ensuring that we have the resources in place in our schools to make sure that this long-term strategy maintains a safe and inclusive learning environment. So where I, I understand the disappointment and, I, and we hear the voices and there's many fantastic advocates, including our own students, um, who do, uh, they do such a, a fantastic job and I'm so proud of, of them being able to not only articulate their position but to have the, the um, bravery to come forward and advocate so that the trustees can inform themselves and, and make better policies. Um, you know, we're, this is the stage we're at. It is the infancy or the, the first step for our board. Have none of those discussions been, been happening before this? Because this is uh, not a new it, issue. It, it's, it's not a new issue. It, as I mentioned, it's a new issue for our board. Um, we have um, discussions through our different um, training. Our, our trustees go through professional development training. And we have the discussions on how do we um, make sure we're serving the needs of, of staff and student who identify 
as 2SLGBTQ+. Um, but it hasn't come to the point where, you know, for, for example, often something, uh, a motion like this would come through a ad hoc committee that was established to address a specific need. Um, that wasn't the case, and maybe, I'm not sure if the outcome would have been different or the discussion would have been different, um, but um, typically those are, we see it coming, there's more time to, to, um, to do the work to get informed. Uh, that wasn't the case, so that's why we're, I believe we're, we're at this point. I've seen a lot of the comments about the decision and the debate that went on, and I agree with you totally, by the way. This, it, 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 the, the feedback here is very polarizing. There's nobody that say, well, you know, so-so. They're either, you know, it's black and white issue as far as they're concerned. Uh, one of the uh, comments that I did get, though, on email this morning uh, suggested that the decision was uh, was uh, actually uh, tunnel vision and blindsided and, and, par- and clearly uh, not recognizing uh, the reality that exists in the world and in the province of Ontario right now, suggesting that you at that board are behind the times how would you respond to that well everybody's entitled to their own opinions obviously um i can tell you that we do the work we have a greater responsibility than just to um make decisions based on what is easy or or what is popular we have a responsibility and we have an accountability um let's not forget that you know we're guided under uh, the Minister of Education and those laws of Ontario, which we comply with, not only out of obligation, out of out of our moral obligation. These are our students. This isn't a, a, a fight. This this is us listening to those who have a need and trying to meet that need uh, in in the context of what our role and responsibility is. You know, it, it's hard to please everybody. If you try to please everybody, you're going to please nobody. We're not trying. We're trying to do what is right to create safe and inclusive environments. There are other boards, and I'm sure you're aware of Patrick, that have dealt with this issue, of course, uh, in various forms. Uh, the Kenora Catholic School Board uh, says that uh, this month, meaning June, our Catholic schools are committed to nurturing safe and inclusive learning environments uh, where every student and every member of the community is welcomed, valued, and respected. Similar comments from other boards, uh, Simcoe Muskoka Catholic, the Ottawa Catholic School Board, says we continue to honor the dignity of every person, embracing diversity and creating welcoming places for all. We are all wonderfully made. Uh, are they wrong by, by doing what they're doing, by, by accepting this and by flying that flag during June? Well, you, well, you, you mentioned that they're acknowledging and accepting, not that they're flying the flag. So there is, it's not semantics, there are distinctions. So our board is also recognizing uh, the month of June as Pride Month. That is lost in this discussion. Uh, at this point, because it's uh, at such an incendiary point. Um, so all along, every day, when we open the doors to our school, we make sure and we work towards uh, ensuring that they are welcoming and, and inclusion spaces. Um, the flag, again, we don't have that shared understanding of what it is within the board, within society we're committed to do the work so that we can come to an understanding at that point conversations evolve uh, and if it's uh, if it's something that uh, is right it will the conversation will continue um, 
if we haven't done the work, there's potential that we're doing more harm than good. So how do you begin this process? I, I know that one of your students who was very vocal about this, uh, I believe her name was Hotchkiss, uh, suggested that, uh, and she's looking at some of the comments and some of the feedback she got. And she says, I think the biggest thing in saying it, it doesn't align with so-called Catholic values, even though the most fundamental value of our religion is love thy neighbor as thyself. Uh, they feel as if as if the board is not being inclusive uh, by simply saying, look, and, and some of the comments, of course, I think were, were way off and over the line. Those are not yours, though. Those are some of the people that, that commented on, uh, I guess, parents and some of the other folks that are involved in this. So there's a rift here. And, and clearly there's there's a, a what some would suggest a chasm here between uh, the two groups. And there are a number of people within that community, Patrick, that you heard from, of course, uh, that are saying they don't feel comfortable in this environment and the board could be doing more. How do you address that? Well, that's what our the uh, the motion we put forward is meant to do is is to have that conversation. Generally, when there is chasms, as as the term you use, it's it's because there isn't conversation and there isn't understanding. So we are working towards fostering an environment where we can have those conversations. We're not going to change certain views in the in the world. Um, to tell you the truth, I'm not overly concerned about the world i'm concerned about how young students who are in our care feel and if one of those students doesn't feel safe then it's it's our obligation to make sure that we do whatever we can to make them feel safe and that's what we're committed to doing the catholic church has very qualified leaders very competent leaders and they can work through that side of the equation that's not my concern uh, nor is it nor is it my concern to to um, uh, advocate for whatever other group. We we're focused on students. We're focused on their achievement and well-being, uh, and we're trying to um, also bring our level of knowledge and understanding to the point where we're making good policy decisions. Which is what most boards should be doing. I agree with you totally. You know, the mission that you've just described there is perfect. But when you have some students who don't feel comfortable in there and feel as if they're not uh, being part of, of that whole situation and they feel uncomfortable, uh, they feel as if it's not a safe space. And I know you talked about that with the motion. Uh, clearly, there's, there's an awful lot of work to be done here. Has there been no discussion at all about this, in not necessarily in curriculum, but talking about this? I mean, because this was a, a very controversial issue, of course, uh, you know, uh, past governments have talked about creating safe spaces, creating dialogue within the schools, uh, and and I know there is some reticence and pushback about that. What's what's the current circumstance right now with with uh, with people within that community? I mean, are they just well they're here, but are are do is there a discussion about about what they're all about and, and about inclusiveness with the other students in the student body? Uh, well, absolutely, there are um, there are groups that are formed. Uh, the GSAs and, and some schools call them other groups, and they're encouraged to uh, form groups and have dialogues. Um, we, um, we have social workers in our schools. We have youth counselors in our schools. Uh, at secondary school, we have school chaplains, um, all who are open and accepting and, and um, engaging on a, you know, on a daily basis. Uh, I'm not in the school. I don't want to to um, give you the illusion that I know everything that's going on in the schools. I don't. We, you know, the reality is we're policymakers, uh, and we have to uh, gather information and, and seek guidance when we're making those decisions. So um, my, 
my I have children. My children are in the schools. I engage with with teachers and principals as a parent. The one thing I'm I can say with confidence is that uh, we have hardworking staff who um, believe and support our students, and they work very hard to make sure we have welcoming space welcoming spaces. Um, and that's where our focus needs to be. This conversation will evolve over time. Where it goes at this point, we're not sure. Um, and eventually the flag may be a part of that conversation. It may not be a part of that conversation, but we will continue to have the conversations. I'm glad you brought that aspect up. I wanted to talk to you about uh, advisors and, and getting information, which I, I, um, I know is your job with, with boards of education, especially with you as the chair. Uh, when you talk to administrators at the school level, the principals and, and, and teachers for that matter too, what kind of feedback did you get from them on this issue? Um, we are we don't have conversations necessarily. We'll have informal conversations with um, principals and teachers. Um, the structure of the board is that really everything goes through the director of education. Um, we have I've had teachers and principals sending me emails directly uh, as as uh, ratepayers or or citizens, um, and there is a range. Um, you know, I'm not really. Uh, liberty to divulge what they say to me but but uh teachers are teachers are parents teachers are uh community members their their uh concerns are the same as as everybody else but and you and everybody else don't live in a bubble either i mean you know what's going on around you too not just within this board i gotta ask you uh, and 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 that has to be a factor in these decisions as well uh and i understand there's always going to be a a concern here trying to marry the ethical concerns or religious concerns uh with the the societal concerns at the same time uh is this the end of this discussion or is it the beginning this is the beginning this this is day three or day two uh of of our formal commitment to the public that we are going to uh, continue evolving and making sure that we service the needs of all our students. For those who have expressed some concern about uh, the lack of, of understanding and the lack of dialogue, uh, will they see a discernible difference in the school environment going forward on this now? I, I believe so. This, you know, this, this June we will have um, more awareness built in. There'll be, there'll be visible signs in our schools. We'll have safe space posters that uh, our communications staff will develop will be in our schools. You know, everything we do is, is um, through the lens of our Catholic social teachings. And, and that's, you know, the concern that some people have is um, uh, outside influences from, from other organizations. We filter everything through uh, our, our Catholic social teaching layered on top that we have Ontario government curriculum that we have to follow. Uh, we have to follow the Ontario Human Rights Code. We have to follow the Constitution. Um, so, so that is how we develop these programs within our school, and that's the lens that they'll be um, be put forward. So, in our schools this year, this June, there will be safe space posters. There will be social media campaigns, um, of which there wasn't in the past. Uh, Patrick, we're going to leave it there for now. We're just about out of time on this. Thank you so much for spending some time with us here today. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, there's, there's going to be an ongoing dialogue, and I'm uh, sure there'll probably uh, be more discussions about this down the road, but I do appreciate your time today. Thank you. 
Thank you, Bill. I appreciate uh, your questions. Take care. Patrick Murphy, who is the chair of the Halton Catholic District School Board, is uh, Mr. Murphy says to us, of course, they uh, will be uh, an ongoing discussion about uh, what's going on with LGBTQ rights and, of course, Gay Pride Month, which is, of course, in June. Other boards, uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, have already had this debate. Some are flying the flag, some are not uh, in situations like this. So I'm sure this is the first of many discussions we're going to be having in the next couple of weeks. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.